Welcome to episode 872 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Radio team, welcome along to episode 872 of I Am Talk with Coach John Houston, Bevan James Oz, mate. Here you go. Pretty good, thanks. How about yourself? Got the old school top on. Got the old school top. Not quite as old school as what the Holy Hammer had on, I think. Oh, no, he did have this one on the weekend. He didn't have the Iron Man Talk one, did he? Yeah, I, bust, I was going through the drawer today and I found the old Iron Man Talk one still Jeez. in there. I've got the I Am Talk one with try buys on there. Do you think that domain still works? Let's have a look. Try buys. No, no. Uh, and Coffees of Hawaii, I think, are on there. So it's all good in the hood. No, bikes. You can buy bicycle helmets. Mm. So it's still a website, right? Yep, yep. But I don't think you're gonna be buying much of it. <laughs> um, okay, I'm talking. Is proudly brought to you by Stephen Doinidas, the Storm. Now, interestingly, I, I, when, when I put the patrons in here, just uh, they, I just worked my th- way through the list, and we yep. sort of mention a few, a few each week, as you guys all remember. And as it happens, Steve um, is one of our patrons, and he was the person who hooked us up with today's uh, interviewee. Oh, look at that. Hmm. Oh, that's very good. Uh, we also got Daniel Stewart. You have a ch- placed a chill in my heart. And Owen, the Sledgemaster Hughes. Okay, for you, uh, this week's show, we've got some news. We've got Hot Topic of the Week. We've got... Prom, prom, no, we're not going to do Pro of the Week. We're going to interview who we're interviewing. John. We are talking to Terry Schneider, who was an athlete in the 80s and 90s, a pro triathlete turned to ultra-endurance sort of adventure racing. Uh, and, yeah, one of the, as you're going to find out, one of the early coaches in our sport and uh, all-round top lady. And then lastly, we have John's Coach's Corner, Wing of the Week, and Questions and Answers. Well, last week we talked about the drug... Uh, is it Colin Chardio? Colin Chardio. And, and, and to be fair, I was wondering, I don't know how we came across last week, whether we were a little bit flippant, but we'd literally had one minute preparation yeah. before the show. Like, said, like John arrives and goes, have you heard the news? And he was like, what? So, and at first you didn't believe me, did you? I can't even remember what, what we said last week. But I tell you what, the, if you're not on social media, um, and some of you guys won't be, but the reaction from the pros has been uh, pretty massive. Um, and whilst this is a shit situation... I actually see this as being a positive. You've got to turn a shit situation into a positive. Um, and I just think that good things are going to come out of this. You know, we've seen the passion from the pros and, and obviously they feel strongly about it, but it sort of brought out for, for a lot of them the why they do the sport. And, yep. and there's been some really good posts and discussion around why they do it. And, and I'm, kind of, I'm kind of hopeful that this is going to bring about some change and whether or not we can all speculate whether there's lots of drug use or not. None of us really have a clue in triathlon. I don't know if lots of people are doing it. I don't know if hardly any is doing it. But I think um, what this is going to bring out is, uh, is hopefully some positive change. Yeah, Ben Hoffman came out probably with the first statement, and he had a really good statement. And, and he basically, I've got it here in front of me, you know, with that F-U-C-K dopers, uh, the news that Colin Chattier willingly and knowingly took EPO to improve his performance is an absolute disgrace, and a reminder that certain people are willing to violate, violate the sanctity of sport for any of n- numerous reasons, from ranging from financial to ego to external pressure or mental health. When I read Colin's apology, I'm not one of the people who are quick to accept and forgive. 
Are you sorry? Sorry now that you got caught? If you are really sorry and you want my forgiveness, earn it and prove it. Give back the stolen prize money and sponsorship dollars. Contact fellow athletes with personal apologies. Work to make meaningful difference in anti-doping efforts. And for damn sure, tell the whole truth. How did you do it? Who helped? And who else is involved? Give the full story and why. No bullshit, etc., etc. So he went all in. Yeah, and, and then Colin Chartier, uh, a lot of you will have listened to the interview and, and, and some of you may have seen um, excerpts of it. He did go and do an interview um, on another podcast and I had to listen to that and you, you don't learn much from it, to be honest. It's um, yeah. The thing I struggle with is you can't believe a guy now. No. And, and no. so the fact he says he wasn't doing it until November, yeah. it seems dubious. I think most people are dismissing that. Most people are dismissing that he's done it alone. I mean, I, I don't know how the hell you take EPO, but... How do you get uh, it? Uh, oh, I think it's pretty straightforward to get Is it? Yeah, I don't think it's... Uh, JohnHewson.com. <laughs> yeah, no. I think in New Zealand might be a little bit harder, but I think in, uh, elsewhere, okay. I think it's a, an internet purchase is not, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do not you, amazing. Don't even have to go to the dark net. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I don't know. I've never looked into it. And in terms of taking it, a lot of people are saying you need help, but... I don't know. I'm not. I don't don't know. I just, as you said, you know, who knows what to believe? But uh, he certainly said that he wasn't taking it earlier on. Well, that I think we all find quite hard to believe. But that's the problem because it's like Lance as well. You know, when they come out, they try to paint themselves in a good picture, but they don't keep. You know, they they save something to save their face. Mm. But the, the big thing that came out for me is you just. I don't know, I end up coming away from that somewhat similar to the, the Zane Robertson interview that I referenced last week. He was a Kiwi guy. He was in a terrible place and terrible state. And it sounds like Colin Chartier, you know, mentally he was just not there. Um, financially, it sounds like he maybe wasn't there as well. And it was just all these pressures that were building up. And yeah, they're all excuses. Everybody else has got their pressures. But I don't know, I've never been somebody who's had massive mental health problems or anything, so it's quite hard to put yourself in their shoes. And it's easy for us non-pro athletes that don't have to deal with that pressure of just trying to get enough money to survive. But it's mental health as an excuse. Uh, well, I don't know. I've never been there. So I, 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 yeah. For cheating? Mm. I don't think so. I think, I don't, I don't know. I just... I get it. Don't get me wrong. So many people struggle with mental health. Mm. Um, but like, let's say you're a robber. It's meant to have a good enough reason to rob a bank. Mm. You know, like you still did the crime. Yeah, so it's a tricky one. It's not, it's not that tricky. You just don't do it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, and, and like you know, if, if you're struggling, you get support. Mm. But if you're an, a long distance athlete, if you're an Olympic distance athlete and you're in a national program, there's probably if you want to go and get support, there is support. If you, and one of his points is he was isolated, he was by himself, he was trying to train, and you just, you, you're just you just going at it solo, no partner, and then you can start to get a bit confused, I imagine, not that I've been there, no. but uh, if you put yourself in his shoes a little bit, I don't know, I just feel a little bit differently. I'm not excusing it one, one minute at all, but um, yeah, I, just, I, th- I think there's going to be some positivity coming out of this. Now, do we believe him? Uh, uh, in terms of the interview that he did, I personally don't. But I've, no, no, no. Do you believe the mental health story? Oh, that. Oh. You know what I mean? Because that's yeah. an easy excuse. Mm. Mm. You know, like it is, you know, like now, uh, uh, you know, I've got, I don't want to sound like I'm unsympathetic to mental health, but it's kind of like, I've been done. Mm. What's my excuse? And you've got quite a long time to plan it as yeah. well because you've got... You know it's coming to two, public, two, two months, I think it was February when he, got, when he tested positive. So you've got quite a long time to plan your story. Um, 
So yeah, there's definitely a few holes in that story. I, I from from what most people are saying, and my I know I hear where well. you're coming from. You like let's have a bit more empathy for people, and I like that. But then you know you watch Lionel Sanders' video, and he was pretty raw emotionally, wasn't he? Mm. And mm. Um, and his thing was he was actually he said at first he was quite empathetic, and then he read Ben's posts and he got mm. a bit pissed off, and. Oh, no, it's, it's a really tough one. Well, and, and in terms of the hot topic, I know I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but I'm thinking what can we do as a triathlon community to try to help people that might be getting into that situation or create a community or environment where doping really isn't an option. And I think if you're a pro at the moment, if you're doping and you see the outrage that's oh, happening, yeah. you'd be, uh, you'd hope somebody's been... Th- is is going to be thinking twice. About it's, it's it. a, and this is what Lionel's, Lionel's argument was that you know the, the sport's really about development of character, because um, it is a winner takes it all. Hmm. You know, like and I remember I remember one time I was with Melina. We were riding somewhere on some epic camp, and I was talking to him about I can't remember what I was talking about. Probably just about making money as a pro. And he said, "Everyone loves you when you're winning." And nobody wants to know you when you're not. And uh, and I think he just talked about sponsorship dollars and that. Like you know, once you're winning. Everyone, all the doors are open, but the doors close very quickly. Mm. Um, and, you know, and it's a tough life. You know, it's you know, and, and being a pro athlete, it's a tough life. Absolutely. So, for, for, if I'm going when I go to Challenge Road this year, to be honest, I don't really care what place I get. Yeah. Uh, if I finish first in the age group, great. If I finish fifth and I have a really good race, I'm satisfied with that. And for me, and because we're mature athletes, and most hopefully a lot of age groupers like this, it's like. I want to just go and do the best performance I can, nail it, and the placing is what it is, and that's nice. And pros often sing that tune. They, you know, that's they, they are going out there to do the best performance, and but you still want to win. Yeah, <laughs> and, well, when your incomes relied on it, and, and yeah, you've, you've got and in to today's know. world, social media, like, geez, we'll comment on it. You know, like, and prior to that US Open, he would have been on the bones of his ass probably uh, because you know. Um, there's no wins there, well, you know, very few, and they, they were smaller races. So, yeah, I just hope some some positivity comes out of this, and um, hopefully we can get, help shape our triathlon community where drug taking is not an option. There was a good article I saw on Triathlete magazine online, and it, and it sort of said, "Where? How many drug cheats have we had in triathlon?" Yeah. And I thought, I thought there was a few more than that in terms of high profile. This is it, you know. There's Nina Craft, yep. uh, and outside of that. This has definitely been some others. The Spanish girl I talked about last week. Yeah, but hers might have been cleared by the look of it, I think. Oh, really? Um, Her and Rudka Beke both got uh, EPO done and they managed to get off that. Um, Oh, but she admitted to it. Oh, then she got busted again. Yeah, no, she got off the first time, then she got busted again. (laughs) Sorry. You think you get done the first time? (laughs) I got drunk driving when I was a kid. I never drunk drive again. Yeah. But there's definitely, you know, you see them come up every so often. But they're usually second or t- third tier. This is by far, along with Nina Craft, by well, far Nina the won biggest the race. one. Yeah, yeah, Nina won Kona. So um, yeah, I'm I'm optimistic that this is uh, this is not necessarily a bad thing. And let's be honest, humans are flawed. Mm. There's always going to be an aspect of this in a sport. And as a lot of people point out, this is a drug taking and age grouping is. That's where I'm going. There's a lot of that happening. Uh, pros. But how I'm, do we I'm, do we know that? Uh, I've been told by enough people that they know people that have been taking drugs so uh, I think in age group it's it's fairly rife but in pros I'm still feeling fairly optimistic that it's not rampant but could be completely wrong uh, you see, this is a shit situation, but some of the positives that come from it, more testing. Well, uh, that's the thing. Are you going to 
go with a stick, and I don't reckon that's going to work. You know, if you just say you're going to get a lifetime ban, it's like, well, two year ban, three year ban. Colin Cattaneo's got a three year ban. He says it's a life ban for me. I'm out. Um, so I don't think increasing the ban's going to do too much. Um, and then if you start about doing it, saying, oh, let's do a lot more testing, let's do retrospective testing, and make the penalties and stuff all a lot harder. Who's going to pay for all that is probably my first question. Um, Yes, it will help, but I think that cultural change is probably what's more important than uh, than necessarily trying to hit everybody with a stick. But again, this is a 1% problem. Is there there a need for a cultural change? Um, hmm. You know what I mean? Because I I think the culture is we don't want drugs cheats in our sport. Yeah. I I think there's more of a problem, as I said, in age group and and, and I think there does need to be a cultural change in age group. Is that it's, uh, that's why I think Lionel Sanders' post was so good. It's not all about winning. Yeah. And I think if we can try to – winning's important, but if we can just try to – Well, it's learning what's the good and the bad, isn't it? Yeah. That's the sport. Yeah. Like we all have days where we're utterly disappointed in ourselves, mm. and then we all have days where we feel we're on top of the world, and mm. that's the journey, and you're going to get a bit of both. I know. So let's let's learn from this and move on and let's see some kick-ass action this weekend at the European Open. Pretty excited about this race. It's going to be huge. Well, just before we say that, I, I actually think, just to wrap it up, I actually think our sport's pretty great. Hmm. You know, when we look at drug cheats it, in the history of the sport, there hasn't been that many elite. Yeah, I was surprised. Um, and even in age group, it's hard to know. Fingers crossed there's not that many out there. Um, and if, if you were an age group cheat, you wouldn't be telling people. No. Like it wouldn't be accepted. Yeah. You'd be frowned upon in your community. Mm. You know, if, if I was doing a bit of EPO on the side, I said, oh, mate, I'm doing some EPO. Mm. How would you treat me? Mm. But I think a lot of people don't have a community as well. So they're off, you know, we've you've been involved in mm. a little triathlon community. Most of the guys that I coach, uh, they're, they're solos. You know, they're off in the middle of wherever yeah. they live and they don't train with people or, or maybe they do a swim squad, but there's not that, I guess, peer pressure to, yeah, toe the line. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are looking forward to this weekend because we have the European Open and it looks like it's going to be rocking and rolling, John. It's going to be awesome. Uh, we discussed last week, pretty much everybody's there. Um, I believe, and you, you can feel free to quote me on this, but I got told last night, and I, uh, I don't think, I think Sam Laidlow's out. And when I went on to OBS Try, you guys can go and do your picks on OBSTry.com. Did that this morning, and Sam Laidlow's name wasn't on the list from memory because I didn't pick him. Uh, it's bloody hard to pick the race. Uh, we were having a little discussion running last night. Um, the guys were going, one of the big three is going to be out before the race starts, or they're definitely pulling out. So you think you've got Blumenfeld, um, Fredino, and Brownlee, and one of them's going to uh, either not finish or completely explode or pull out before the race even starts. I think the safe money would be Blumenfeld will be there till the end. Um, but God, I hope Brownlee and, uh, and Fredino just hit their straps and make the race interesting. The course is a little bit interesting. Um, Perhaps more for the people on the ground there, it's going to be a little bit difficult. So the swim is a two-lap swim with an exit, and that always makes it interesting. It's not something we see a huge amount of in long-course racing, so that's good. Um, We'll get a feel for where people are at, and I think in this race, in both the men's and the women's race, uh, the swim is going to be potentially be a critical part of the race um, because, uh, yeah, again, you can't necessarily win the race in the swim, but you can certainly lose it. So with an exit, 
So how far will they have to exit out for? Oh, they'll just come out. That's on a beach by the look of it. Okay. So they'll just come out, run around a cone on the beach. Have and, you done that much? Um, no, no, not a lot. It's bloody hard. If you haven't done it, it's really, really hard. If you're, Especially if you're racing it. Yeah. If you're just participating, then it still throws you out. But it, yeah, it's really difficult. What would be the hardest bit? Getting back in the water or getting out of the water? Oh, getting back in the water because your breathing is completely... Yeah. Especially uh, if you sprint. Yeah, completely gone out. And then you've got to try to get back into that sort of uh, rhythm. Um, the bike is interesting. It's 80, 80 kilometers, um, four laps. Laps are good. I like the laps. Seems a little bit weird when I looked at it. Um, it's like a split transition to the finish. So I think you swim at the beach and you do your bike course laps and they don't necessarily come all the way back to the beach. This was my interpretation and I was trying to look at it going, I'm going to look at this as if I'm a spectator, not a podcaster and trying to go into huge detail. But it looked to me, you do the swim, you bike a little bit and then you do your laps and then you come back to the swim, uh, to, to T1, and then from T1 you run to a different location down by the port area, and then you do laps there, um, which is a little bit weird if you're a spectator. Uh, there's 161... Well, you say different location, how far? Oh, only a couple of k's. Um, oh, so you can run a couple of k away from the bike? Yeah, from T1, and then oh, you'll finish... for a for a hassle for spectators. Yeah, for, so for us watching on TV it shouldn't be a problem, but if you were trying to go, I want to have a hot corner yeah. where I can see the swim, the bike, and the run. If it's, if it's 400 metres away, cool. But if it's a couple, okay. Mm. Yeah, that's what's cool about Kona. You know, you can watch the swim and lots of races. Go up to hot corner, watch the bike, yep. and then and you can see them come past on the run. Uh, and the run uh, is 161 metres of elevation per lap on the bike. So I think that'll be enough to give the strong riders something to work with. Possibly not to splinter the group to shreds, but it will mean... If you're a weaker rider and a strong runner, you are going to have to do uh, a little bit extra work. But I'm assuming they'll have that 20 meter draft zone, so everyone will be working at a good rate. Uh, the run is six laps, where you have this point to point, and then you do six, six laps of 2.5 k's. This is where I've got a bit of an issue with it, um, because two and a half k's is going to take roughly seven and a half to eight and a half. Your laps, you everyone be killed. Sorry? If you did your lap rule, well, everyone would be out. This is, uh, and this is my point. So you, you think seven and a half to eight and a half minutes, ballpark, it might be a bit more, it might be a bit less. Um, lots of athletes are going to get lapped. So I looked at the women's race from Canada last year. Tenth place was nine minutes behind. Now, um, so that means everybody in, except the top ten are getting lapped. That's going to be confusing. And in the US Open, tenth was 12 minutes behind. So that means like you're only going to have you know a handful of athletes that aren't getting lapped if we saw a similar result. And then the men uh, in Canada, it would be 12th place. You'd only have 12 men not getting lapped. And the US Open, it'd be 14. So it's more than half the field are getting lapped on that side. And if John Newsom was race director, they'd be out. You're out. You, you get your prize money for the place you're at at that particular time. Otherwise, you're out. Well, I think this proves that will never happen, John. Because obviously they're going for small lap well, They need a new race director, that's all they need. Oh, cool, John Newsom. All you need to do, and maybe if you did a 4K lap, then that, that bumps it out to, you know, um, 13 to 14 minutes in that sort of ballpark, then it's probably okay. And if you're that far back, tough shit, you're out of the race. Start times. Uh, <laughs> start <laughs> times. Is, now, John, you have a dilemma. I do have a dilemma. Yep, you have a dilemma. Here's your dilemma. I dilemma is I'm going out on Saturday night. Oh, <laughs> well, I thought it might be because we have the Queen, the King's coronation on Saturday night as well. Do we? Oh, it won't be this. It won't be that early. Well, I might. It's be. It starts at seven. Oh God! So, do you watch the Queen, the King's coronation? No. Or the the uh, European Open? Well, I've watched the European Open, but I'm going out, which is uh, I, was, I was trying to wangle it with some friends, saying, 
Can we do Sunday? I think Sunday works better for us. Yeah. Let's do Saturday. Oh, okay. Uh, so I am a bit pissed about that. But I will get up. I'm going to get up on Sunday morning and watch it without looking at anything. Nobody send him a message. Uh, see if I can. Uh, so it's going to be it. in New Zealand starting 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Perfect for us, isn't it? Yeah. It's 8.15 over there. Australia, 8 p.m. Europe, early Saturday morning. Um, America's going to be a bit screwed. Americans, middle of the night, so tough shit, Yankees. Um, <laughs> everybody else is happy. Actually, I think Australia is probably 4 p.m., not 6 p.m. I don't know why right there. So Aussies will be even uh, even better. Uh, they also do have the World Long Distance Champs. Um, on, How long will it take? About? Uh, it'll be about three uh, three hours, I'd imagine, for yeah. the boys. Who are you probably, picking? Uh, um, I have picked, uh, when I did my OBS try, I think I went Blumenfeld, Fredino, Ditlev, did I go fourth and fifth? Can't quite remember. Um, then on the females, I went Daniela Reef, I think Anne Haug, uh, I think Chelsea Sedaro, maybe. Uh, yeah, I can't remember beyond that. I think it's gonna be if we think about the actual race, it's gonna be really interesting to see how Fredino goes because we, oh, we haven't seen totally. him race in a while, have we? Yeah, not at all. He could you know? be completely shit. I don't think it'd be terrible. I think it'll be well, really good in the second. It'll be good in the swim. He'll be, yeah, it'll be good in the swim. It'll be. Good on the bike, just who knows what's going to happen on the run. Um, and yeah, so I think he'll be he'll be okay. I hope he does well. Yeah. Okay, we've also it's also the long distance champs will be happening as a sideshow. Really. Yeah, it's really a sideshow. I mean, Joe Skipper's doing it, um, one or two others, but uh, yeah, it's a good, yeah, I don't, I'm not really that interested in it, to be honest. They should all be doing the PTO race if they're, uh, in my opinion. Especially if Joe Skipper's level, but Joe's can do what he wants. Um, okay, so the other race we have happening this weekend is Ironman Australia. Pretty Australian dominant field, which you kind of expect. Strength of field is not very strong based no. on the PTO. So you've got Stephen McKenna, Nick Castelline, Tim Van Burkle on the boys' side. And on the female side, you have... Uh, it's not a bad, is it it's Australasian champs? Um, no, I don't think day. so. Um, yeah, it's, it's, this race has suffered in the past. They've had as like a, I know in past years like as little as twenty five grand yeah. um, total. So it's gone up to seventy five grand. Four so, slots. Yeah. So slots are not. I imagine slots aren't such an issue now because they've got you know two locations. Oh, I, I don't know if they've increased it or not. But um, surely, yeah. Uh, female side, you got uh, Kylie Simpson, Rekka Carterfelt, and Chloe Lane. So I mean, Australia's got a good pedigree. Um, lots of good athletes over the year. Patrick Verne won it four times. You had Chris McCormick won it a couple of times. And females, you had Chrissy Wellington a couple of times. Uh, Laura Sedell uh, won it three years in a row from 2017 to 2019. Last year's winners were Tim Van Burkle and Sarah Crowley. So good luck if you're doing Ironman Australia at Port Macquarie this weekend. Okay, John's short course update. We've got the Ibiza Multisport Ibiza. Festival. Ibiza. 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 So what's happening there, John? Uh, we had, yeah, that's, that's going on. It's a massive festival. So they do have the PTO race at the end, which is kind of a external to that. But they have the World Long Distance Champs. They have the, the Duathlon World Champs that was held last weekend. They have the Cross Triathlon World Champs, which is, uh, you know, your exterior type thing. They have an aquathon. They have every bloody thing you can imagine. They have it over there, uh, except an Olympic distance race. But they had the duathlon over the weekend, uh, and they ran 5K, bike 20, and ran 2.5. And good old Mario Moller's yeah. back in the winner's circle. He won by five seconds over Benjamin Cocois from France and Creel Le Bain, uh, 
Birhan was in third place. And then on the female side, we had, uh, so we had short course Fowler taking the boys out. And on the females, we had Emma Pellant, who will oh, be yep. warming up, I guess, for the PTO race. Uh, she took that out. Uh, reasonably comfortably, 22 seconds over Zanette Bragmeyer from Hungary and A. Ueda from Japan. She, gosh, she's been around forever. Uh, 1983. Well, this one, one of the, the second guy was nearly 37 or something like that. Mm. So, okay, so Paris Olympic course has been announced. It's going to be in the centre of Paris. So does that make it pancake? Um, yeah, it'll be technical, but it will be fairly flat. You know, it will flat. There's not going to be any big hills. You'll have some yeah. up and down, so I'll have to go over some bridges, but it's right in the centre of Paris. It's going to be... Amazing place to do a race. Cool, cool place. Uh, so it's, visually, it's going to be awesome. Um, they do have a bit on the uh, the Champs-Élysées, uh, and it's just a cool, cool location. I've swum in it. We used to have a race in the Seine um, before, so that's a river that runs through Paris, but it was further down. And, Is um, that's where they're going to swim as well? Yeah, so that river probably isn't the cleanest. Um, I don't think it's. I, I imagine they're cleaning it up. It's probably not as bad as what the Thames used to be. Um, but I imagine they'll have to do water quality testing. So I'm sure it'll be fine. But so when you say cool it's technical, race. lots of turns. There'll be lots of turns. Yeah, it's all just. It's just going to be taking all the Paris little highlights, but multi multi laps. But it should be a pretty awesome spectacle. Now, when it's technical, does it really advantage like? A, a, a rolling hilly kind of course definitely advantages the cyclists if we look at like what's going to be happening in Nice this year for the men's Ironman in a short course race if you're not that strong on the bike does the technical lots of turns course oh yeah you know because you, then you you tend to see them gravitating towards the back of the group and then you're getting more of a slingshot effect okay. um, so I think we watch it on TV and they're not all the time but a lot of time they're riding really hard and it's hard to stay, not impossible to stay in the group. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. What's it's harder, a hilly course or a technical course? Uh, that's a good question. Because I imagine technical course got a lot mm. more surges because mm. you come out of a bend, you're surging. Yeah, no, technical is probably a little bit harder. The, the, from what I can see on that one, I didn't count up how many corners there are, but there's going to be a lot of cornering and a lot of right-angle corners. Mm. When you see some courses where it's just nice smooth corners, then that's that's pretty cruisy. Yep. So Yokohama this week, or the weekend after next, um, that's got corners, but I don't recall that many right angle corners where you, that's when you can really slingshot people off the back so I think when you do watch Olympic distance races uh, or short course stuff they often are riding harder than what you might think do you, do you train specifically for that like you oh, know shit yeah you know, yeah, so yeah. you are doing lots of short block intervals yeah and yeah and all, lots of criterium style riding um, so just yeah finding blocks where you can actually you know pump it in and out of corners a lot traditionally I know Greece was a little bit mm. rolling Traditional Greece was an epic. Yeah, you loved that one, didn't you? Oh, that was insanely hard. Yeah. So traditionally, they are pretty short course. I mean, um, kind of technical yeah, bike um, courses. Yeah, they definitely go for that angle. Um, so Sydney was they had some sort of rolling hills. You know, Sydney's not flat. Yeah. Um, then where do we go after Sydney? Two thousand and four was Athens. That was that was insanely hilly on the run. <laughs> was on really? The, on, oh, really? Like. Pros were struggling to get up the hill. Oh, really? Oh, wow. it was mental. Uh, and then where was 2008 Beijing? That was sort of more out in the countryside. That had some hills in it, and so there was enough of a test, but it wasn't overly technical. Then where do we go? London. London? London. Uh, yeah. I don't recall London, but I think London was pretty straight. That was a bit of a drag race. They went around some cool sites and stuff, but I, I seem to recall it being pretty then straight. Rio had a good hill in it, um, not enough to break things up, but it was a good test each lap, so you yeah. would have been maxing out on the climb. 
Where did we go after Rio? Was 2020? Tokyo, Tokyo was, was reasonably technical. Um, okay. And then we're so back to a mix. flat technical. Sorry? We've had a mix. Greece would be your favourite? Oh, yeah, definitely. Because we got first and second. Yeah. No, but, no, but, but, but course-wise. Insanely hard. Yeah, insanely hard. Would have been nice to have some run, uh, some hills on the run, though. I would have really blown them up. Mm. Yeah, you're, 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 you're an evil man, Love. John Newsom. Yeah. Okay, let's go to the sweets discussion. If you've qualified for the World, long tri- tri- world Triathlon Long Distance uh, Championships and the 70.3 World Champs, which would you go to and why, assuming you can only choose one? And we've, we've removed the location because of a lot of people it's going to come down to location. We've removed yep. that criteria. It's like purely going to so in the same location, 70.3 or Long Distance Worlds. Kevin Hunt, possibly uh, 70.3, depending on the venue. Um, but it's great racing for your, in your country's colours at Long Distance Worlds. And uh, at least the New Zealand team spirit is great. And Kevin's over there, I think, at the moment, racing in Ibiza. Did a marathon, uh, did London, did London he? Marathon as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, Kylie Cox, ITU, the uh, distance hold appeal, but competition traditionally not as strong. Tai Tai Topo or Topo uh, holds zero appeal even as a home world, but I can absolutely see why foreigners would want to come to New Zealand as a destination. Most of the times, it's 70.3s for me. For a change, I'm with Kylie on this with the old uh, uh, Topo, yeah. Colonel. Uh, like doing a World Champs in New Zealand doesn't actually hold much appeal to me. Oh, I'd yeah. much rather go and travel somewhere to a race. But don't, don't, it's really interesting. Now, in the local community, because I'm not really yeah. in touch with it now. Are lots of people aiming to get to this race? Uh, I have not heard many people talking about it. Because um, I remember when I first started triathlon, the year course, I started, yeah. the, the short course chaps was in Queenstown. Mm, and they went ballistic. Yeah, and everyone, and I didn't know. Like, I probably could yeah. have qualified. Yeah. You know, if I, if I went for it. Um, I didn't know. And, um, but I came into sport and everyone wanted to go to that race. Mm. Like, everybody. Mm. Um, so to qualify in New Zealand would have been pretty tough at that time, I imagine. Yeah. Um, whereas, is that the feel right now? Not the feel that I get, no. Uh, Which is interesting. But that might just be my little little community of, of athletes. Um, yeah. Because I think if I was in the sport right now, mm. I'd be aiming for it. And we're, so, uh, as a side for this, we have got a, this is a you know, fairly legitimate discussion here because we, we have the choice next year for Kiwis. Um, you've got the 70.3 world champs in Taupo, uh and the world long distance champs are in Townsville, Australia. Um, so then it's not a like for like. Yeah, but... but Similar, you know, some yeah. people will do both, but um, it's you know, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, anyway. it's still world champs. Mm. I can't believe you're not doing it. No, no I'd rather, I'm into locations and stuff at the moment. That's my my gig. Ticking yeah, off those things. It's still going along. All oh, the rock expen- stars are going to be there. It's going to be a bloody expensive exercise. Anyway, we'll we'll get we'll keep carrying okay. on my points soon. Um, Samuel Brown went off topic and said, "Why don't you? This is a meaningless meaningless question. How about addressing the recent EPO test?" And it's like, well, that's not the freaking question. Which Ollie Jenner said. Samuel Brown, that wasn't the question was asked, though, was it? Good on you, Ollie, pulling people in line. Yeah. Uh, Luke, Luke Gilmer, uh, I would probably take the Topo 70.3 Worlds over Townsville ITU if I had the option. The 70.3 will have a bigger hype with a deeper pro field, while the ITU race in Townsville will have little coverage and only a handful of pros. Terry Bissetti has got long-distance worlds because wearing your country's kit is something very special. I was fortunate to represent Switzerland twice in the ITU European Champs, and it's something I'm very proud of and having achieved in the sport. And that's a really good point, actually. Oh, I totally agree with that. Because when I did Kona, the New Zealand contingent actually did a really good job of bringing us all together. But we got tops. Mm. They gave us these... That's the only thing I've actually... Other than that, my medals, that's all I've Mm. kept from triathlon. And, um, you know, it was quite cool. 
Yeah, not all countries do that. That's no. a kind of a New Zealand, Australia thing. Yeah. Uh, I think the UK maybe do it a bit now as well yep. at, at Kona. Uh, Frank Lee said, long distance worlds, you earned it. Uh, Lucy Francis says, depends on, lo- on how attractive their location would be to travel to, race and then visit and relax afterwards. And last one I'll do will be Garth Ridley, 70.3 if the spot was earned and not rolled down, otherwise the world long distance champs uh, race. So George Samuel's got, to go to the 70.3 world champs in Finland is going to cost 10,000k pound, so pound, plus as there's literally no accommodation, so this year would definitely be the world long distance champs for me. Mm. Uh, for me, it comes down to, there's quite a, a, few, a couple of things. A few people pointed out, at the moment, if you go to 70.3 world champs, you're going to have a pro, probably have a good pro race there. Versus world long distance champs, you're going to not have much of a pro race. Although this year, completely opposite because you yeah. have the PTO race. Now, is that going to be a tradition we're going to see? I don't know. Um, but it does it seem stupid to have two races in one weekend uh, in terms of having both of them. Yeah. Hopefully, the, I don't know, the world long distance champs just seem stupid to me. Uh, so that's one what, thing. The, for me. the race is a thing? Well, it's just it's a meaningless title. I mean, you can call you great if you win, yeah. but it's like nobody was there. Yeah. Uh, and then the Especially other thing, weekend. I think the other key criteria for me is representing a country, and that's why the long distance worlds has a much more appeal, bigger appeal, is you've got that team. And I know you said in, in Hawaii, you know, you have the, the one team meeting yep. and you have a, you wear a t shirt, but when you go to long distance worlds, you you're traditionally your kit, you're staying as a team, you're tra- often traveling as a team, okay. and there's a lot more coherency in terms of actually. Being a team. Have you done it? Uh, Not long course, but have you done and represent New Zealand as yeah, an age group? Yeah. Oh no, as a junior, but the back then it was you, you'd, you'd be with the age group yeah. team, so you're all in one hotel, and it's, it's, it's a much much better vibe, in my opinion, if that's what you're, you're after. So I think that's the two the two main criteria for me is on the moment seventy point three. You go well, I get to see the cool pro race, and I'd quite like that. Yeah. But on the other side, I think the team, for me at the moment, the team atmosphere and worrying that racing for your country is, um, would trump things. So next year you'd go to Townsville over Topol. Mm, totally. And although if it was the opposite way around, would I go to Topol if that was long distance world champs versus Townsville at 70.3? I still think I'd go, I don't know. I still like the idea of representing New Zealand more than just going solo. So that's where I'm at. I think I'd, I think I'd go to Topol. Hmm. Yeah, just because I think yeah, the the race week experience would be way better. Sure, you don't have that team thing, hmm. and I do like the idea of representing your country. I think that would be pretty cool. You could argue that you are. I know you're not getting the, the kit and all the team, but you are representing your country at the, at the world champs. Um, yeah. But mate, the rock stars are there. Hmm. You know, and nothing beats race week when you walk around. You see Rian Ferreira walking mm. down the street, and Topol is very small, is. so you're going to see yeah. everybody there. Yeah, you know, so. Um, I think as yeah, I think as if and as an athlete, you're more challenged at seven point three world champs. Uh, I'd debate Strength that. Field? Yeah, I'd debate that. You know what I reckon? Yeah, yeah. Do you reckon that many people are going to go from Europe? Are going to go to Townsville uh, for the world champs? Mm, I'd like to do some research into that to see. I think you'll find a way way bigger field at seventy point three worlds in terms of the strength of field at the top would be interesting. Probably more so if they had it in Europe. Like if, if you had 70.3 worlds and long distance worlds in Europe, I'd be really interested to see. Uh, location depends, will affect the strength of field massively. How many local athletes that are guns have done a long, long course that you know? 
Uh, oh, oh, guns. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, a few. Yeah, yeah, no, it wouldn't be that dissimilar to 70.3 worlds. Okay. Yeah. Because um, I, I actually think that's important. Based on no no kind of research or facts, but I think the seventy point three world champs would still be stronger. Because mm. I don't think Russell the, Cox, if you're still listening, go do tell tell us the answer. Yeah, because that. I just don't think the, the the world long course champs holds that much pedigree. Mm. You know, like mm. how many age groupers aspire to do well in that race? Yeah, and, I do. And of, I, of I, the guns, I would aspire more to do that. Then. You should do both. <laughs> you know, well, you sponsor me. Yeah, you do both <laughs> next year and that's, see how you win in the field. And that's the issue. Both of them are bloody expensive races. What do you pay to do the, the long course? Oh, it'd be similar to, to yeah, be similar to yeah. you know um, seventy point three. Maybe not as much, um, but it would be in the same ballpark. I get this week's discussion is uh, what can we as a triathlon community do to try to help those athletes. Feel like doping is an option, or help athletes yeah. that feel like doping. You can is an reword option. that a bit if you want, but the idea is how can we create I don't know, a safe environment or whatever where I don't know pros and age groupers don't feel like drug taking is an option. I don't have the answer for it. And again, if we go back to what I, we were talking about earlier, save it for next week. Well, no, it's it's it's. Let's be honest, it's not a huge problem mm. for pros. Maybe for age groups, based on your theory, but um, we'll talk about it next week. Okay, we've got an interview, John. We have. Thanks very much to one of our patrons, Steve Donatus. Hopefully, Steve, I've pronounced that correctly. Probably haven't. Dear Donatus, um, isn't it? Oh, that's how we see it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway, Steve, thanks for helping us uh, line this interview up, and it's with Terry Schneider. Here we go. Righto team, uh, so today we have Terry Schneider on uh, for an interview and Bevan, you may remember this, but I, well, I started triathlon 1991 and back then there was not a lot of triathlon on TV and when it came on I always used to video them and just watch them over and over again. It used to be G- Gillette World Sports Special. Oh yeah, that? I do remember that, yeah. And they'd, they'd sort of often profile, you know. Kind get, of European sports, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. and um, they'd often have you know, little segments on a triathlon here, there, and everywhere. And I, one name that did bring came up quite a few times back in those days was Terry Schneider. So it's nice to have her on today. She podiumed in Kona along with a bunch of top tens. Um, one escape from Alcatraz one year. Uh, lots of podiums at other big races. Transitioned into adventure racing, uh, and amongst many other things. So uh, welcome along to the show, Terry. Thank you. Really great to be with you guys. Um, now, obviously, um, before we came on here, we were sort of discussing, you know, some of the, the athletes we've we've sort of uh, interviewed over the years. Um, but often results only go back into sort of the nineties, and I so the first results I could find for you was around nineteen ninety. So maybe um, I imagine mm-hmm. there was some water under the bridge before that. Maybe tell us about mm-hmm. um, your sort of you know adventure into triathlon and um, and where it kind of started for you. Yeah, you know, I did my first triathlon, I think it was 1982 in Southern California. And I was, I was still at university. No one knew what the sport was back then. And, and, but I just, it just so happened that uh, I was running at the time running for the the school I was going to. And one of my roommates, fathers had done a triathlon. You know, I grew up with the, um, in California with the junior lifeguard program, you know, competition lifeguard stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, I wasn't really a swimmer, but I swam and I rode my bike for transportation and I was a competitive runner. So it just kind of seemed like a natural for me to do a triathlon. So did a, did a triathlon, did really well. And I was one of those people you hear about all the time who just immediately 
was completely hooked on the sport. I, I loved mixing up three sports. I liked the transitions. I liked how hard it was and um, just became really engrossed in seeing how far I could push. So my, I think my second triathlon was a half Ironman. So I'm nice. again, one of those people who just goes all in. And then I heard about Kona and did a qualifier and got in. So I think my first Kona was 86. And I did pretty well for way back then and really having absolutely no idea. And, you know, these are the days when we're wearing skid lid helmets. And I I have pictures of myself with wool bike shorts on on the bike (laughs) ride. And just so funny, right? And and, uh, really had a horrible run. But I still pulled off. Gosh, I'm trying to remember my time. I think I still went around 11 hours or something like that, which isn't really that bad. And so... Uh, you know, for a for a person, a young person who didn't know what they're doing, and then I got really excited. The se- I came back the next year and took an hour and a half off my time, nice. which was pretty exciting. Partly because at the time I worked for Specialized Bicycles, and they had gotten some prototypes for the first Scott Aero bars, the first <laughs> Aero bars on the market. And so I ended up getting a prototype set of Scott Aero bars and all the guys that specialized thought I was a dork because I put these handlebars on my bicycle. And I immediately noticed a difference training on them. I think I rode on them for just a few weeks before Kona went back the next year and just smoked my, you know, like an hour faster on the bike or something just by using the the Scott Aero bars. So it was pretty cool. And then when I came back that year with 10th place overall, um, then the guys that specialized were like, so tell us about those handlebars. <laughs> <laughs> when, so when, was, did, um, when did it become a profession for you? You know, I know back then the prize money was sort of starting to come in, but when did it actually become a profession? Yeah, really, I s- officially started racing pro, I think, in 88. Mm. And it wasn't, you know, and I went into it thinking, I'm going to try this for a couple years you know, there's not a lot of money, and but I'm going to just try for two years and see if I can actually make a living. One of the things that I think I had going for me was that I was pretty good at marketing myself. So I kind of, you know, I, I went on with a friend to start a women's triathlon team. I think we could have been one of the first triathlon teams ever. And, you know, we got a little bit of money and we traveled to some races. And so that's when I started learning the marketing end of it. And really developing relationships with companies, getting sponsorship, working with events to get, you know, to races, get a little pre-race money and kind of sort that whole thing out. So I was able to, you know, put a living together. And within a couple of years, I was actually, you know, making a living. I I wasn't getting rich, but I was, Mm -hmm. I was making a living and I was traveling around the world racing and, and doing all right. So it was, it was, I feel super, super lucky and i look back and see just what an incredible experience that was and and being able to do that and and <laughs> and, and acknowledging that it was really difficult really mm-hmm. difficult but that i had the tenacity to to go after it i raced 10 years pro and and really enjoyed all of it it was an incredible incredible experience made yeah, good um, friends and got to travel the world so it was, it was awesome 
you make your own luck to to a degree. But how do, how did yeah, you sort absolutely. of go about structuring your season? You know, back at the moment, you know, there's races all over the bloody place, and pros can pick and choose. You know, obviously bigger money races here, there, and everywhere. But um, back then, you know, there was only a handful of Ironmans. Um, how did you sort of go about structuring your season? So. Kona was the big race every year for me. And uh, I did better at longer events, partly because my swimming wasn't awesome. So I did better at the half and, and full Ironman distance. So usually at first, of the, so I'll, let me let me go back a little bit further. Um, usually did like a, maybe wildflower half in March or in, I'm sorry, May. And then kind of did some longer events, did an uh, Ironman mid-season, which would have either been, say, Germany or Japan at the time, and then shot for Kona. At one point, World Triathlon Corporation wasn't called that at the time. They had an Ironman World Series. I don't know if you guys remember that, mm, which yeah. is kind of a crazy thing because it was one of these things where it, they did reward people for like the more Ironmans you could do, the more yeah. payoff you would get at the end. And then Kona was a double points race. I don't think they did that for very long. It was a few years. Yeah. So I I did that when they brought it out. When they brought it out, I did the Ironman um, World Series or whatever it was called. And so I at that point I was doing New Zealand Ironman. I'd often come back and do Australia. I did Australia and New Zealand quite a few times. And then either Germany or Japan and Kona in October. I never raced Canada because it was always too close to Kona. And I, Kona was the big race for me of a year and I really gunned for it. So that was, I always set myself up to, to have time beforehand to, to get some solid months of training and go there in my fittest of the year. So that was kind of how it played out. And then I'd squeeze in other events around that. But there was a lot of other super cool ultra events happening. Um, I don't know if you remember Strongman in, yeah. on yeah. Miyakojima Island, which was a cool event. And then there was, um, oh gosh, what was it called? The big duathlon in- Zoffingen. Zoffingen, Zoffingen. So there was some, I, I really loved travel and I still do. My whole life has been based on that. And you know, where can I go that's new and different and interesting? And so I was always looking for the the slightly unusual races. There were some good half Ironmans in Europe. I raced in Europe quite a few seasons where I'd be over there for a couple months racing. Um, Sater Triathlon in Sweden was a big one mm. that I did several times. And um, let me think, what else? Nice, went to Nice. So kind of kind of did everything pretty much. With um, Exciting you, you, you see that you kind of your your focus was on long longer racing, but at that time, especially in the eighties, kind of athletes did everything. So did you do much short racing? And if so, were you successful in them? Yeah, I did quite a bit of short races. I I usually focused on the shorter. Event. I kind of dabbled here and there. I did sprints and Olympic distance and half Ironmans kind of all over the place. I really, I dabbled him all over the place. I'd fill them in between the longer events and I did well. I did better at halves. I did okay at Olympic distance at the time. Nowadays, you know, if I were racing pro, I would just get smoked because my swimming just isn't up to par. But even back then, if I came out of the swim in an Olympic distance triathlon a minute back, I could maybe make that up on the bike and run. And I, and I did well, I actually did well. So I like the I like the longer events better 
um, the shorter ones were fun and short and, and really fun, but it just, it wasn't my forte. I really like to kind of get out there and sort of suffer for a while. <laughs> yeah. So, and it was interesting to me too, training wise, training for the longer events was a really interesting science project to me, you know, how to train for it, how to learn pace and nutrition and, you know, putting the whole thing together, really learning how to race a long event, not just finish, but go out there and, and race. So here's, a, here's another interesting kind of throwback is when I first started doing Ironmans, what I noticed um, really watching the television coverage was a lot of the top women were taking walking breaks. I don't know if you guys remember that mm, during the, yeah, yeah. during the marathon. And I thought to myself, um, I was a pretty good runner. And I thought if they take a walking break, every aid station, even for 10 seconds, how much is that cutting into their time? So one year I did, I went to uh, New Zealand early in the season and I, I did a bunch of strength training prior. I hadn't done that before thrown that into my training. And my goal was to go there and see how much of the race I could run, how much of the marathon. I was going to go try, just run, just keep going and not stop. And I was able to do it. And I had a really good run. Like I took, I think I went like 25 minutes faster in the marathon than I had before, which is like weird. Nobody takes giant chugs at their pace anymore like that. But, you know, back then we were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So then I, you know, that kind of strategy and learning, you know, my pace on the bike is super critical for how fast I'm going to be able to run. I'm a really strong cyclist, but I know that I got to hold the reins back just a little bit, just a little bit. And um, one of the funnest things in Kona every year was I, I raced at half Ironmans a lot. And, and this is back when they didn't have wave starts and we were racing against the age groupers. So I would always be out there with a lot of the age group guys I knew kind of mixing it up and, and some of them I got to be really good friends with. And we'd meet in Kona and there was one guy, I can't remember his name, but he would he would introduce me to his buddies as, you know, this is a woman that I kick her ass in half Ironmans. <laughs> and every year in Kona, she comes by me on the run like I'm standing still. And and it was a it was a compliment. His compliment was strategically I know how to do an Ironman. I'm kind of figuring it out. And and that to me was a really interesting problem to solve how do you do an iron man and pace it so that you can finish strong um it's a tough as you guys know it's a tough thing to do right so that was a that held my interest for many years uh, i guess these days we've got so many more tools we've got coaches we've got heart rate yeah. monitors, we've got power, power meters it's 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 a lot easier to accelerate that progression but back when you were doing it i imagine it was as you said kind of learning on the fly. I don't know if you had sort of individual discipline coaches, but back in the eighties, I, I know there was next to no triathlon coaches and there was, you know, they started to emerge more in the nineties, but um, were, were you pretty much flying solo and just trying to figure it out yourself? Well, I, again, I don't say this to be pretentious. I was one of the first triathlon coaches <laughs> mm, yeah. and, and I, I started coaching while I was racing and, while I was racing professionally, one of the reasons I became a triathlon coach, I had got my undergrad degree in exercise physiology. And I, I just had a lot of people asking me questions at races. Oh, what are you doing for training? And, you know, that kind of just conversation. So I started realizing, you know, I could, this is really, it's really fun helping people out. I'm figuring it out too, but I seem to be doing okay. And maybe I should start coaching people. So I started coaching 
just amateur athletes mostly for triathlon and did quite well. And I coached, I ended up coaching in all different um, endurance sports over about 35 years and made a pretty good living doing it and really enjoyed it immensely. So yeah, I was my own coach and I was one of the first coaches, men or women, I think in the sport, actually, I didn't know anyone else who was doing that kind of thing. And so I started doing that, I think in the early nineties is when I started a sort of officially in my business was racing triathlon, but then also throwing in the coaching as well to yes. offset the income a little bit. Yeah. It's very similar. Like my main coach was John Hellman's and he was much the same. Mm. He was just, uh, yeah, right, you know, exactly. he was yeah. racing and Aaron Baker asked him for some help and he goes, okay, I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do yeah. here. Um, yeah. So about- that's similar to how it played out for me as well. Yeah. It's yeah. John. Talk, t- talking about um, Hawaii, you know, that was your big focus for the year and you might, you'll be a really great authority on how the event changed. You know, I think from 2000 on, it just went ballistic, but you've kind of got the mm. the, the view of what it was like from the 80s and, and through into the 90s as it did become more and more professional and, and more and more competitive. So um, what, what sort of changes did you see to the to the race sort of as you worked through the, the 80s and into the 90s? Mm. And you're talking about Kona specifically, yeah? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think, uh, the, the changes that I saw specifically. So I stopped, I think the last time I raced in Kona was 97, maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe somewhere right around there. And I mean, I was in when they started doing prize money, what, you know, the, the prize money started increasing, Times were dropping a lot when there was a good weather year. Mm. So there was just a lot of, of um, excitement in that regard, in a sense that we were still in an era when no one knew what the human body could do at that distance. So there wasn't small minutes coming off of the records. There was giant chunks coming off of records because if the, if the winds were favorable and it wasn't too hot, somebody would go out there and break the record by a half an hour or something. Mm. And so that kind of stuff was super exciting. And and within Ironman, as you know, they also have, you know, you got the swim record and the bike record, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. So those, the same things were happening within that. There was still pretty big margins between the women as far as how far apart we were. Now there were some exceptions to that, but at the mm. finish line, there were still big margins between the women, which almost kind of made it a little more exciting because what happened earlier in the race really played as far as what was going to happen at the finish line. So we had to kind of bust our asses and we were still racing around the age group guys because Mm -hmm. they didn't have pro wave stars at the time. So we had to deal with the mass swim start. I think that's a big giant piece to it is Mm -hmm. you know, you, you bring your, you take your open water swimming up to, you know, huge notches when you have to contend with an open water swim start. And I think there's a mentality around that, that I can't, I can't say for certain, because this isn't really fair, but I feel like there was a rawness to the sport in general Mm. that maybe may or may not be there anymore. It's just different, right? I mean, like I won escape from Alcatraz, the year that the run was 18 miles in the Marin headlands, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, a, like, and that was two weeks after coming back from Kona, like just a brutal run 
now they have to do a nine mile run, you know, with one hill basically. And and it's, yeah. and, and obviously the swim, that swim is hard, but still it's just not, it's not as grueling as it used to be. It's not, it's not this um, kind of raw spectacle of a bunch of pioneers out there trying to figure out what the hell we're doing. The thing I think that we had an advantage on, I feel like I did in a sense that Ironman ultra distance triathlon still comes down to what happens in your head during a race. And what, what I had an advantage and all the athletes back when I was racing had an advantage of, we didn't have all the gadgets. So we really were, if you wanted to excel, you were required to get your shit together in your mind and figure (laughs) out your pace, figure out your nutrition and you didn't have a, a watch telling you what to do or some big computer telling you if your you know, power output or it was exactly perfectly what it needed to be given the conditions. You know, so we had to race intuitively. We had to train intuitively. And I feel like I learned a lot. I learned like the art of racing. That that is the art of racing in, in mm. endurance sport is intuitively understanding your body and what it needs and therefore what your strategy should be. I think that's the art of racing long. And I don't know if athletes have that now. I think, I think, in fact, I've had clients who have freaked out after a race because they come to me and their watch stopped working or something malfunctioned and they didn't know what to do. I, as a coach, I feel like I failed them in some way because I didn't require them to have this skill that we used to learn when we didn't have all the the digital stuff. So, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what you guys think about that as far as, I think that's a big change that oh, yeah. there was I, this, I would love to... there was just this head game that happened out there that was required of us because we didn't have the, the, the data that people have now that are, that are, is, is in their face when they're racing yeah. and that changes things up in a big way. So oh. if I screw up, it's on me. <laughs> yeah. If I have a bad race, it's on me. It's it's uh you know because I didn't sort myself out, and I saw it a lot. There was a lot of carnage. There still is. There always is in Kona, for example, because yeah. it, the conditions are tough. Some people do what better in that than others, for sure. No, I love my gadgets, but I'd love to go to races these days and have gadgets completely banned. It would be fantastic. Right. Uh, it would just create right. it would, would create a lot more carnage. But um, moving on, you know, you, obviously your <laughs> triathlon career was hugely successful, um, but then you kind of, it looks like you kind of put a, a big marker in the sand and went, that's it for triathlon. And you moved over to, to ultra endurance um, sort of stage yeah. racing and an eco challenge type stuff. So people that haven't seen that before, you know, it's multi-day. Um, some races you, you have a break, some races you just carry on your, your break when you want to um and it was a it was a sort of a, a pioneering era and it was really sort of taking off i always remember the irony of watching the uh, a race i think i think you might have won um the mild seven event which is kind of weird when you've got yeah, a cigarette right. cigarette yeah. company yeah. sponsoring a <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, ultra know, right? endurance race but yeah. it, was, it was a big money race so, so maybe talk us through why you made that transition from triathlon mm. into endurance sports well, so the first um yeah, the first Mark Burnett, you know, I don't know if you guys yep. have heard of him. It's yep. a, you know, yeah. So Mark Burnett brought the Eco Challenge Adventure Race, um, which was is his is his baby to the United States in 1995. He had done the Raid Galois, a French company event, mm. um, event expedition adventure race, and he wanted to bring the event to the United States. So, so he did in 1995. It was in Utah. Beautiful, beautiful course. I was still racing triathlon at the time, but. I was starting to feel like I was 
getting ready to retire. You know, I don't know what retirement means, but really, but I was having some problems with my back and it showed up a lot on the bike in Ironman races. And I did everything on the planet to sort it out and I couldn't really sort it out. So my bike times were starting to not be as, as good as I had wanted them to be. So I was kind of looking at that and thought and thought, well, maybe it's time to move on. I was still racing well, but not, I think, at, my, at what I felt like was my potential. So then Eco Challenge comes along, and the guy that I was dating at the time and a good friend of ours looked, saw the event, and we went, this looks like fun. What do you think? And at first, I thought, oh, I can't do it. I'm still racing triathlon. And then I thought, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Because they, they were then they were talking about me coming and being a support person. I'm like, I'm not going to be a support person. I wanna, and, and I do have a natural tendency I gravitate toward risk and the unknown and wilderness experiences. And I, I naturally am that way. So even as a triathlete, I always trained on trails and did all kinds of crazy stuff because I found it to be the most fun and interesting. Um, so we went and did the first eco challenge in 1995. We had no idea what we were doing. And I, again, I love that aspect. I loved being a pioneer in the sport, the Ironman races i love being a pioneer in the sport of adventure racing came away from eco challenge and fell in love with the sport and absolutely got my ass kicked in that first race far more than i could ever have imagined physically and mentally i had a lot of people after that race ask me oh what's harder you know like an iron man and, and or adventure expedition adventuring i go to the different planets like we can't really compare them it's not mm. it's not possible you know, if you just want to go flat out, you know, obviously higher threshold, really ho kind of holding a somewhat of a red pink line, you know, for hours and hours, Iron Man's your baby, or maybe a 50 mile running race or something like that. But if you want to go out and suffer for days on end with no sleep, then adventure racing, ultra running is the way to go. And, or maybe some mountaineering as well. So that's, that, that whole piece to it became my new science project. And I got real excited about that. So went on to do seven eco challenge events, the Raid Galois, lots of adventure races all over the world. The thing too, that was so intriguing to me is we're not just going to foreign exotic countries to do these races. We're going to places that human beings don't get to go. They're putting us out in the middle of freaking nowhere. And that was really exciting to me. I'm doing sports I'd never done before and I have to learn them. I like being a beginner and learning new stuff. So the whole package of the adventure racing thing just kind of swept me away. And, and uh, I kept racing triathlon for a couple more years, but my heart wasn't really in it. And then officially sort of, you know, transitioned over to um, adventure racing and then did, you know, from, so from 1995 through to the early two thousands, I, focused on adventure racing, started doing some ultra running. I did Western States 100 um, run a few times, started doing some mountain climbing and lots of other, lots and lots of other stuff. And then, you know, do, creating my own adventures, like I want to go do this thing somewhere in the world. And so that became super exciting and fun and um, just new ways to push myself, new ways to challenge myself, you know, in, in nature. And I'm still kind of going after it as an old lady now trying to hold the body together and see how much I can get out of it still. 
<laughs> what did you learn about yourself from from this sport? That the more ultra endurance stuff that you didn't learn from doing triathlon. Mm. You know, I think um, the way I sort of flippantly describe it is, I feel like my life in triathlon was sort of like the bachelor's degree of endurance support, endurance sports, and then starting to do events where I was moving for days on end became kind of the PhD. And what that means is that when you're required to hold yourself together physically, mentally, emotionally, intellectually, the whole thing for while you're sleep deprived in nature. So now mother nature is playing a hand in your experience. It doesn't triathlon as well to some degree, but you also know in a triathlon that, you know, on the run every mile, they're going to hand you some water and some food. You know, we're going and doing these races self-supported and, and it's grueling. It's absolutely incredibly grueling. I think one of the biggest things I learned is that humans are really good at adapting. We can, we can adapt. Our, our minds are really strong. It's absolutely incredible what human beings can do. And that was interesting to me. What I could do, what I saw my teammates do, what we could do together when we actually got together and everything kind of worked, the, the possibility of what the human body and mind can do in sync is beyond what most people will ever experience. And I find that to be really, really interesting. And I think there's enormous value in that. Where's the value? Well, let's talk, let's talk about confidence. I mean, you know, once you do something crazy and off the charts for a week without sleeping, you kind of come back to the world and go, everything else is just sort of like riding along in first gear. <laughs> I, imagine, is, you know, um, I imagine in those, I've never done any of the, the multi-day sort of stuff, uh, not continuous. I imagine there's times where there's going to be some confrontation amongst the team if you've made a wrong turn or you've got a, a navigational decision to make and you don't necessarily agree on it. Um, how do you kind of deal with that when you're in a fatigue state? Have you sort of got a pre-plan or how, how do you actually deal with that? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. Our team had a captain and um, we had a way that we processed needing to make decisions. And if there wasn't a consensus, then our captain would be the one to make the call. And we all agreed that that was the process because the person that was our captain did, you know, 90% of the time did a great job in pulling that off. One of the cool things that starts to happen when you work on a team and when you're fatigued is that it's, there's like a, there's a knowing that you have an empathy with yourself with your teammates so they understand you and how you need to operate so here i'll give you a weird example um when you're racing that long the stress is enormous and there would be times when i would do week-long events where i would really need to cry just to blow off some steam i kind of liken it to like you know lifting the lid off the pressure cooker a little bit just to blow some steam off so my teammates knew that and our captain would who was also happened to be my boyfriend at the time I would, if I started to cry at an inopportune time, like we're in some risky situation or something, he'd go, you know, you have one minute to cry. And it sounds harsh, but it worked. It worked. So I would go, I would just like go for it for like a minute, just sobbing my eyes off. And then I'd be done. And then I was done. And I'd be like, okay, let's move on. I'm good. I'm good. So it's, 
it's learning how to, we all learn how to cope with things in our life, stress. When you're in an extreme physical situation, you have to find ways to cope with the things that are coming at you or to cope with your fatigue. And as a team, you have to learn that to do that with each other. So you have to understand how each other operates and, and then help them out. Um, a lot of it is about you know, adventure racing looks like a bunch of egomaniacs maniac, that go out there and try and kill themselves. But really, these are people that are taking their ego and they're putting it to the side because it's the, to do the event. Because it's the only way the team's going to work is if I'm not going into a race thinking my agenda is the one. No, the team's agenda is what I have to uphold. And if I can put my ego aside, then I can actually do that. So, yeah, my team were a lot of really accomplished uh successful people um but we were able to do that during races you know you so i'll tell you a quick story because you'll like this so i did uh mild seven um with paul huddle mike pig and david kelly david was mm -hmm. one of my expedition adventure race teammates we had a blast and i absolutely love those guys and whenever i run into mike or paul we like to tell stories about mild seven because a lot of funny shit happened during those races. And Mike pig is as much of a amazing, incredible, tough athlete as everyone knows him to be. One of the things he didn't know how to do, and there really wasn't um, a way for him to know because he hadn't done this before is to kind of have a sense of the team thing. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't, he, he, there was times when, we would have to kind of grab him and go, no, we need to do this because of whatever's going on. And one case in particular, we're in China and we're Mike and I are in a kayak together and there was no rudder on the kayak. So I had to, I was in the back. So I had to steer and I told him, you just need to paddle. You're the motor of the boat. I am going to steer the boat and then paddle as much as I can, keeping us going straight. So, and, and what Mike was doing though, is he kept trying to steer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you guys are, know anything about kayaking, but so this is, this doesn't work. Right. So it doesn't, so I kept telling him just steer the boat. No, no, just paddle, just paddle. Don't steer the boat. Don't all steer the boat. So we end up in the middle of this river on this dam and he's angry at me because we're not going straight. And so we have, we end up yelling at each other. We have this yelling contest on the top. <laughs> so I finally, and he's convinced that I'm incompetent, that I don't know what I'm doing, which isn't actually true. And so I say, okay, fine. You steer the freaking boat. So he got in the back and I said, I'm going to paddle you steer. So I did that. And we were all over the boat. We were all over the river going backwards and the whole <laughs> thing. He, he didn't know how to do it. So then he, re that's what, then we realized, okay, Terry knows. So those, those were funny, some funny things that happened where uh, Mike was a guy who we, we come to repel and Mike would just throw in his harness and just fling himself over the cliff before he let anyone check his gear. Like, <laughs> so I would be like, I'd grab him, you know, by the back of the heart. Hold on, dude, let me check. Like, cause he didn't, he had never done this before. And I'm like, you know, I'm worried the guy's going to end up splat on the ground, you know, the bottom of the cliff. And so he would just put his gear on and before letting someone, you know, check it for safety, he would just try and, you know, jump off the side of the cliff and get down as fast as he could. So he, he was so gung ho. It was awesome. Great guys. And Paul was fabulous. And we had fun racing together. We did well, but, um, 
but Mike just just kind of he was all about just put your head down and go and not really sort of cognitive of the whole dynamic of the team and how that needed to work. So it was funny. Um, I was going to talk to you about your, a TED talk that you did a few years ago, but what I'm going to mm. do is just reference people to that and they can uh, go and check it out because it's a good good talk and it sort of talks about your transition from, I guess, sort of retirement from endurance sports almost and, and adventure and, and making your own adventures across Bhutan. So we're going to put a link with that in the show notes. But if you guys just search up Terry Schneider um, TED talk, you'll be able to find it as well. But it's, it's really good and, and well worth a watch. Um, I do know as well, you got a, a book out. I don't know anything about your book. So give us uh, the spiel on, on your book and what it's all about. Yeah. So I, I've actually written quite a few books and um, the one that I'm the most proud of is the one you're referencing, but I do have a bunch of other books, mostly for training, training books um, for multi-sport sport athletes, a couple on triathlon and then others on, you know, swimming, biking, running. And, and so, you know, check out my page on Amazon and you'll be able to see all the books under Terry Schneider. But the one book I wrote that was really exciting and there's going to be more of this coming. I'm doing a lot more writing now professionally um it's called dirty inspirations lessons from the trenches of extreme endurance sports and it's an anthology of stories of races i've done adventures i've done mountains i've climbed and the the underlying theme that kind of is woven into each story are the things we learn as endurance sports about ourselves about our place in nature about pushing ourselves about, you know, how we overcome all of those things. And I, I, I've gotten a lot of really great reviews on the book and people who, who even non-athletes who've been pretty excited about it. I think it's a book about human nature and um, maybe a peek into the mind of someone who does a lot of really hardcore stuff. And, and, with the with the hopes that there's some understanding you guys have probably gotten questions over the years why do you do all this stuff you know why do you do it why do you keep doing it so i i go about answering that without really giving an answer i go about discussing those questions and the other questions that come up and also i'm someone who went from triathlon and then you know what i would consider continue to kind of up the ante and the difficulty of the things that i took on so that's a big question too. Like, why would you do that? So why not just stay in the sport and continue to see what you can do? Why venture off into new realms and and see what you're up to? I answer that and and why people decide to take that on and and what's so enticing and intriguing. So it's a it's a kind of one of my special babies that book and I do I'm working right now and getting it out on audio it probably won't be out till around the end of the year but that's kind of been a fun project that I've been working on as well cool no I love hearing all the old stories so guys you, you'll be able to check out um, we have a link to the TED talk we have a link to Terry's website terryschneider.net um, you can also find her on amazon.com for all those book titles but always love hearing about all the good the good old days um, so Terry thanks so much for your time yeah, great. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. I love the interview. Just someone who just has a has a lust for life. I love the bit. It's like you're allowed to cry for one minute and yeah. can move on. You say that's your Belinda all the time. Yeah, but I think that's uh, that's one takeaway for me. If if you're in a race 
and you're feeling sorry for yourself and things are going shit, just ex- allow yourself the time to not grieve but deal with it yep. and then move on. Uh, and she seemed to develop with the assistance of her boyfriend at the time a knack of being able to do with that because, yeah, you can just dwell on things. It's like, okay, I've had a shit swim. That's all right. What can I do about it? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Righty-ho. Let's focus. Move forward. Have a pack of sad for a bit. Get on with it. Great. I think that's uh, one of the number one things come out of that interview for me. But uh, What was the most disappointed you've ever been in a race? Um, when, uh, probably when I was a, a favourite at a race and then pulled out and it's just a bit of a soft cock. What race was that? It was a New Zealand team selection race uh, in 19, still bitter about it, 1996. <laughs> okay, what happened? Uh, I was, it, was in, it was in Taupo actually, I think. And yeah, there was, there was two of us that were, one guy, he, he was better than me, but I was... Um, yeah, I was in with a chance, and I'm pretty sure it might have been New Zealand champs as well. Uh, and just sort of crumbled under the pressure and just raced shitty and yeah. pulled out. And not, not and pulled out because, not because of an injury, but I was having Sweet. a shitty race, yeah. and I was just like, fuck, screw this. Yeah. It's like, damn it, shouldn't have done that. Didn't set a precedent, thankfully. Didn't, didn't pull out of many races in my, my time. The most disappointed I was, was actually, unfortunately, it wasn't my performance, but I did the first time I did Coast to Coast, so I did Teams. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is, uh, this is like my second event because I think I did a race and then I did that, and um, so the bike a guy I went with biked, I did the run the first day, mm-hmm. the next day he's kayak and I do the bike, and uh, it was a funny situation because he it, like he was just some guy from the gym and, mm. he, and he, I know he'd done the coast to coast, so I said to him, "Do you want to do coast to coast? Yeah, yeah, we'll do teams." And I I wouldn't want to be like a kayak, so he was going mm. to do the kayak. So, and we just, like, we didn't train together. Like, I literally saw him four times before the race. And I'd go out mm-hmm. and train again. Oh, it's going all right. And I'd, and, and I'd just say to him, oh, I'm taking it pretty casually. Mm-hmm. But I was doing 20 hours of exercise at the gym a mm-hmm. week. So, I think I got fifth in the run mm-hmm. at the end of the first day. We may have been top three team. I had mm-hmm. a really good run. And it put the shirts up him. <laughs> you know, because cause the first bike everyone comes in together. By then, yeah. I had a stellar run. So, I think I th- we may have been third team overall at the end of the first day. Mm-hmm. So, then he gets in the kayak. And he... He was, he was a recreational kayaker, you know, like he was an elite athlete. And he, did, he, he, he didn't finish kayak. Uh, oh, mate, I remember I was so disappointed. Oh, I remember, because I wrote a journal, I've done it for years. And in that journal, I just have a big word, disappointed. <laughs> 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 I was so gutted. Uh, um, and, and he, yeah, and, it, and, and unfortunately, he put pressure on himself because we were mm. in a really good place. And um, yeah, I was absolutely gutted. That was the most disappointed I've ever been. But uh, I would encourage you guys to go and have a look at um, TED Terry's talk. TED Talk. Uh, it was good. Um, as you know, you guys have watched TED Talks before. I think they're limited to a certain amount of time. I think it's maybe 12 minutes or Depends something. Depends on the talk, but yeah, they can be up to um, 20, I think. But hers, it was good. It was about her sort of transition, in, um, sort of trying to slow life down a little bit. Uh, and she sort of does expeditions across Bhutan and sort of learns uh, about the way the the is it Bhutanese? I think it is. Uh, how they live and, and took a lot away from that. So it's uh, well worth a look. Okay, we'll put links to the TED Talk and her books in the show notes. Okay, uh, John's quiz question. It's a quick one. We'll, uh, who placed second and third at the now infamous PTO US Open last year? They'll be ripping their undies right now, wouldn't they? Sorry? They'd be ripping their undies. Well, they would be because I, th- it's did, big I, money think, race. It f- I think it went, it was 100 grand for first. I have a feeling it might have been 50 for second. might have been more than that, 50 or 60. But that's, uh, that's a lot of... If you're in a moment of redemption, 
Sorry? Oh, just this cool no, thing. Yeah. If you're in a moment of redemption, holding on to lies doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> how do we know? That's the thing. We don't know. Is he lying or that, not? But it's a problem when you become a cheater. Yeah. I've, I've probably told the story, but when I was younger, I cheated in school. And I, what happened was, was I had this, it was probably third form, I had this lovely old teacher. She was lovely and she really liked me. But I sucked at school. So one day she handed her test results back. I changed my answer. Right. I went back up to her and said, you gave me the wrong answer. Oh. And she goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And then she goes, wait a second. Uh-huh. And she knew that I yeah. bullshitted her. And she never looked at me the same again. Yeah, yeah she never, yeah. And I was, and you know, like, that's what happens. Okay, John, let's go into your coach's corner. corner. Right, so you did a crazy bike ride. We did at the weekend. We rode uh, 254 kilometres over the weekend, two days. No, we rode double that. We rode 254 k's on Saturday. 254 k's on Sunday, 2,400 metres of elevation. So for the Yankees, that's 159 miles each day and about 7,900 feet of climbing. Why do this? Uh, So I needed some endurance work for for rote. I respond really well to to big mileage, especially on the bike. Uh, And so that was part of the reason, um, is needed a weekend. And doing this sort of stuff when you're at home is really difficult. Everybody with families would appreciate that. When you go away, you kind of like got a free pass. And it was only one night away. I thought I'll just invite a few people along and see if they're keen. All of a sudden, it's I've uh, got like twenty people. We had up to twenty-five at one stage, um, and so then, and the other thing is, it's just a cool thing to do. Go from one side of our island to the other, and then back again. So um, had that you know, air of adventure and uh, just a bloody hard challenge. So we had some beefy hills in there, a lot of climbing and a lot of very steep climbs. We had quite a bit of wind on the first day, uh, tailwind to start with, and then about three or four hours of pretty decent headwind. It was a bit soul-destroying. Um, Effort-wise, uh, uh, my little group, we had five or six of us um, in the group. Day one, normalised power, 207 watts, which for me is about 70% of FTP. Um, that day I did more work on the front. Second day, a little bit lower, 201 watts normalised power. Um, that was because I sat in a little bit more, not because I was being necessarily lazy, but just sort of sharing the load around a little bit. Didn't want to deprive other people of doing some work on the front. Yep. Um, one different thing that you guys will have heard a lot about our epic camps, you know, we're racing all the time and stuff. Ian Wood made a good point um, that he was quite grateful that we weren't racing up a couple of the climbs because uh, that makes life a hell of a lot more difficult. Uh, we often have King of the Mountains and one of the climbs we did was, uh, Bevan was talking about the coast to coast before, we, we go up this, it's called the Oterra Gorge and it's steep, you know, it's like, <laughs> really steep, well over 20% in a couple of places, so just to get up it is a, is a real challenge, and if you've got to race up there, uh, bloody difficult. So I thought I'd do a quick high five. Can I just ask, mm. post a weekend like that, what do you do? Um, do you, have you planned it so it comes with an easy week after the fact? Yes, yep, uh, actually we're, we're doing an easy week, and then I'm actually going to be racing next weekend, or trying to do a race simulation, so it's kind of do the camp, like load up heavily, and then and then easy week, and then try to because we have it's you know going into winter now we haven't got any races so yep. we're going to try to do a half Ironman race simulation this weekend. Um, so yeah, we'll be followed by an easy week. Somebody messaged me last night and she said, "Oh, why don't you just take a day off?" Like yesterday, I was I was doing some run coaching, and I was like, "Yeah, it was just active recovery." And I think yeah, days off are good, 
but active recovery is also very good. So I had a swim this morning as well. So no, this week will be pretty low intensity. Okay, top five tips for big weekend riding. So number one, have a nutrition plan. So I personally worked on a two-hour cycle. Um, you know, it's really easy going into these things thinking I'm just going to eat lots of food, but actually having a plan is really, really important. So, you know, I was aiming for around about 50 grams of carbohydrate per hour, um, mixing in uh, either solids and liquids and some normal foods, at least for the first two-thirds to three-quarters of the ride. We typically have an aid station, you know, around about the three-quarter mark where you're going to start have a bit more of a lunch. And from that point on, then it's a little bit different. But up to that point, I basically work on a two-hour cycle, have my bike computer that beeps every 30 minutes, and that'll tell me to and food and you're pretty much on it from the get-go so yeah having a nutrition plan is really important and planning your aid stations with these rides we try to not have the stops too close together so around two to two and a half hours apart um, and if you're planning something like this yourself um, trying to tie your, your stops in with toilets as well guys can be a bit selfish on this regard yep. because we can go for a whiz anywhere um, usually females want to have a toilet which is totally understandable and do the uh, squat no, uh, and it just so happened on this trip we were actually able to time things perfectly to have uh, you know um, several stops, even though we're in the middle of nowhere. It worked out pretty well. Okay, number two is to have a game plan slash objectives for the days. Yeah, it's like a. The, of course, the objectives get from A to B, but um, having a little bit of think rather than just going, I've got to get from A to B. That's like going to an Ironman and just thinking about the finish line. There's lots of little um, steps along the way, so having a little bit of a game plan is really, really important. Um, but also being able to be flexible and I'll maybe get to that point a little bit later on. So my game plan was, okay, keep it. You know, we want to keep the effort reasonable all the way through, but come home quite strongly. Okay, so. On this particular ride, we kind of have gentle climbing, or pretty much flat for the first third of the ride. Middle sort of third is uh, all hills, and then the last third is like very gently downhill. And so my game plan for both days was to be nice and strong in the last third of the ride and, and keep the pressure on. So that was good. Number three, uh, support crew make a massive difference during the start, during the end, in the middle, and at the end of the day. And so if you're planning one of these yourself, um, that can be re it's really, really How many helpful. Do you have? We had I mean, we had two minivans and two trailers, so if oh, anything awesome. happened, we were able to um, you know, get people get picked up and stuff. If you've got a group of mates and you're doing this, yeah, we could have done this ride um, relatively easily self-supported by picking up food along the way and so on. But it's, it's really helpful to have a sag wagon there, which has got some spears in there. So like the Holy Hammer, he screwed a tyre and you've yeah, got tubes, but you haven't necessarily got tyres on hand. Um, and you just kind of know you've got those targets to, to get to and um, yeah, make a massive difference. And rolling on to my point number four, this was a crucial one for me on the second day, was changing your um, kit, um, especially your bike shorts, around two-thirds or three-quarters of the way in. Uh, God, it made a massive difference to me on day two. Uh, it is it, nice, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's nice, but my one big tip to tie in with this is change your kit, but make sure it's not exactly the same sort of kit in terms of your bike shorts. So I've got um, one brand that we use most of our camps, so I've got quite a few pairs of their shorts, 
but when I changed, if I just changed into the same short, it's often the um, the seam lines on the sort of the chamois and stuff that will start to get to you. If I just changed straight into the same chamois, it would have been a fairly similar feel. Yeah, it would have been dry and it would have been a little bit better, but I changed into a different brand. Oh, it made the world of difference. My ass was so much happier after that. Um, and the important happy ass, happy life. Oh, yeah, it was a lot better. Uh, be ready to go really, really deep. You know, and this comes back to partly around sort of having a plan and having a game plan. You need to be ready to go really, really deep. If you do get to the edge or you go a little bit over the edge, this is what a couple of people did at the weekend. They had to get in the van, but they managed to bounce back really quickly. So again, a bit like that point, having your one-minute cry. Um, okay, shit, I couldn't do that. I thought I was going to be able to do it. Couldn't do it. Then they get back on their bikes. So... Um, Day two is not usually as bad as what most people think it might be. You know, it's a ma- we did a massive day on the first day. Yeah, getting back on the bike initially, it's like, oh my God, my ass is a bit sore. But you managed to get back into it pretty, pretty quickly. So the undercarriage care is critical. But day two is not usually as bad as you think. So that's a little summary of what I got up to with my weekend. It's like going to school, come in. Show and tell for for, yep. for Monday. What did you do at the weekend? That's what I did. Here's what I and did. And well done to all the others that joined us. We did have a fair amount of carnage, it's got to be said. Uh, we had two people crash the weekend before the camp and they couldn't come. One person went down with sickness before the camp. They couldn't come. We had a crash on day one where a guy completely rode off his bike uh, and himself, which was a shame. Uh, And then day two, we had another crash on some railway lines. Uh, And we also, through the night, had a lady that went down with uh, a stomach bug. Sounds Uh, like a bloody disaster. Yeah, and so it was uh, challenging. However, I think we only had one puncher. Oh, really? So it was pretty good. Oh, that's pretty good. They all fallen over, but no budgets. Yeah. <laughs> Always look on the bright side. So next year, um, if people are interested in a mini little camp, I'm planning on doing one down in Queenstown about the same time in April, and it's going to be taking in the Triple triple Crown, where you do three ski field resorts, or three three uh, three probably our three biggest climbs in New mm. Zealand, almost. Uh, Coronet Peak, Remarkables, and the Crown Range, both sides. So four big climbs. It'll be, a, uh, it'll be like doing a big alpine have, stage. Have you done that all in one day? No. That's why I, why it's, again, why it's, I think of things, oh, I want to go do that. I'm going to do it. Maybe a challenge. Okay, let's go to Winger of the Week. week. I've actually called it up already, Jombo. So the Winger of the Week uh, is Brett Clifford. I think he was 63 or something. He's from Christchurch. Yeah, yeah. So he's That's, from Christchurch. He's, he's speedy. There's a picture of him doing, I think, your race. There's a video of him doing, coming along the, the Esplanade there. Right. Um, I think the John Newsom's finished. What placing was he? Yeah. What, what, where I don't know. It's in, just, no, where is he in the rankings? I don't know. Oh, last week was like 60, I think. Yeah. Around that mark. Uh, yeah, Christchurch boy, he's a good runner, is he? He's, uh, he's getting pretty good at all three. Oh, oh no, really? he's really good on the bike. Uh, he's really fast on the run. He's the next runner. And he is learning to swim. But I remember, I think I've only raced him once before and I beat him, but that's because I was so far in front after the swim. Okay. Uh, but Brett's, oh yeah, there we go, 65th. He did 14 hours and 57 minutes of training from 12 activities, 3 hours and 12 minutes of swimming, 8 hours 32 on the bike, and 3 hours and 12 minutes on the run. Um, Brett, I think he won the Sea to Sky this year. Oh, okay, great. Um, There's a picture of him going to the finishing shoot. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a one twelve marathon, half marathon. Yeah, that would be legit. No, yeah. he's, he's a fast runner. That's really good. Yeah. 15, 51, 5K. Mm-hmm. 32, 52, 10K. And he's, uh, I think he did, I think he's a PT. I think he's got his own little sort of um, 
personal training business. Oh, nice. And he's down at Timaru at the moment. Oh, that's awesome. There you go. Brett Clifford, you are our winner of the week. week. Okay, the quiz question. Oh, yeah. I've got a little bit of a cheat on this because I actually saw a picture of the men's podium. So oh, that's more than a little bit of a cheat? Yeah. That's I'll actually hand the cheat. <laughs> you're, you're like Colin. <laughs> I didn't intentionally do it. I think I was looking at the, the European Open and they had some picture up there. Okay. But I think I would have... Who was it? Got, so the men's... It was. We know Colin Chartier and that's going to stand because uh, unless they happen to do some retrospective testing that manages to find something. He was first. Second, he ran down Magnus Ditlev. And third place had a really good day as well was Sam Long. And on the female side of it, not 100% sure I'll get this, um, but I know that Ashley Gentle won it. And then second place was Taylor Nib, and who had a massive lead, um, but it was very, very hot, and she faltered on the run a little bit. Still at second, so that was great. Third place, I don't know. I'm going to have to take a bit of a stab at that. Don't, did Lucy Charles go back and do that race? I think that might have been her comeback after being injured. So I'm going to go with Lucy Charles for third place. Okay, I don't have that here in front of me. Okay. So, uh, so we, we are, okay. I just thought you meant the men because okay. of, because of Colin's sexist cheat. Pig. Well, no, because of Colin's oh, cheating. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a sexist um, pig. Let's see. So Ashley Gentle was first. And if we look at USPTO Open... Taylor was second. Oh, I was right. Lucy Charles was third. Oh, there you go. Love your Take work. the points this week. Okay, so you haven't swam this morning? Have swum this morning. Recovery swim. Great to have an easy swim. Really easy. What did we do? We did we did 600 warm-up, uh, mixed strokes. So then we did twice through, three times 200, easy to steady. Two times 100 drills, 100 kick. First time through, we did it, all, did it swim, freestyle. Second time through, pull. Then we did 650s bands and then 300 metres um, mixed strokes warmed down. Nice easy swim. Okay, uh, let's say thank you to our patrons. We've got Mike, the farmer of Fox Hewison. We have uh, Barbie, a Dinky Dynamo, Bressole. And Duncan Danger Penfold. If you want to become a patron, go to www.imtalk.me. Get the show also. Oh, find out how you become a patron there and join up. Uh, if The uh, show can be emailed to you from the front page. Coaching, Coach John Musum, my stuff, bevanjamesisles.com. Other content, imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. So what, you got any other goss? Uh, you know, goss, not really. Teachers in New Zealand are striking all over the bloody place. Oh, they're going to get, are they? Yeah, half day today. What do they want? Uh, more money, smaller classes. Get the smaller classes. I don't know. I think they're going to. They're starting to lose the parents. I think. Oh, you think? Yeah, there's a lot of strikes happening. Oh, you <laughs> like this of it? term, it's like they're doing different year groups on different days, half day. Tom's like only at school, bloody three days this week, I think. So anyway, just dealing with some strikes this week. Uh, not that it, the kids are old enough now, it doesn't really affect me, but it does if, mentally it affects me because they'll just go and sit on their bloody devices. So I've got, I've got my um, IT consultant going to be coming in shortly with a new router, and then there's a shit's going to hit the fan. So what's what's the key with the new router? Is it can you time it? You can control whatever you want. You can block devices. You can you can block how much time they spend on uh, oh, this, on this. Yeah. So uh, get ready for a fight. Well, no, Hayden, who's doing it, he said his family didn't talk to him for two days. <laughs> <laughs> so, I am well and truly ready for that, and looking forward to that. How much time do you reckon they spend on it? Far too much. We've got these rules in place. Nobody listens to me. Really? I've got yeah. Far out. Does uh, it, 
I'm singing the tune of just about every parent oh, on the yeah. planet yeah. does your head in. But I, I don't just think it's parents. Mm. Like a lot of people. Mm. Yeah, like, I, I'm pretty good. Mm. Um, my day off is Friday and I can waste a lot of time on my Friday. Mm. You know, I'm pretty, I, generally speaking, I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm far from perfect, but mm. I'm pretty good. But it takes a lot of effort. Mm. They're addictive devices. Horrible things. Yeah. Horrible things. Horrible Even what's happening with you. I had a funny experience with the weekend, John, because my parents... My my dad and his side of his family kind of didn't. There was a disconnecting moment when I was about five, mm-hmm. and so I've never really had much to do with that side of the family. Um, and my my dad's my granddad really. We, I come from a long line of alcoholics. My dad gave up mm-hmm. drinking, and that was almost a problem. In my family gave right. up drinking, so um, rogue child. <laughs> like well, I remember, I remember when I when I was about eight, my granddad trying to give me beer. Mm. You know, it's just what you did. You drank a beer, the kid had a beer, something like that, with your granddad, kind of thing. Mm. Um, I was probably even younger, actually, I was probably five. So um, so then my parents never really had much, well, my side of the family really had much to do with dad's side of the family. Mm. And then granddad died about four years ago. And, and, like, I didn't really know the guy, so I had no mm. real connection to him. And then, so dad kind of got back in contact with Nana. Mm. So there's been this kind of slowly, well, dad actually has a lot to do with Nana now, so she's kind of coming back to her family and stuff. But I haven't really seen her side of the family in, mm. since I've been like five or six. Mm. So my nana had her birthday, I think she's 85, uh, or something like that. She had her birthday on the weekend, and so she had a birthday lunch. Mm. And and basically all the people I grew up to to was about maybe five or six mm. were there. And it was mm. just really, you know, 40 years later. Mm. Um, going, it, going, not not the same, but it's sort of like going to a school reunion. It really was. Mm. You know, and... Like Jonty, there's a kid called Jonty who's now like late 30s. I knew him mm-hmm. as a baby kind of thing. And, and you know, mm-hmm. just, yeah, it was just, you know, you kind of go through life and you get to this middle age and stuff like that happens. And you kind of think, man, life goes on, eh? It does. Yeah, so that was quite cool. And then on Saturday, watch the Warriors lose again. Yeah, that was a bit of a bummer. <laughs> yeah. They're not losing poorly, yeah, which is good. They're yeah. still in the games, but you yeah, want them to win. Get my knee injected this week. Mm, crikey. Yeah, had it injected about six weeks ago, but came back too quick, John. Mm. You know, a bit keen. Mm. So I'm taking a week off exercise. Oh, goodness. I might do some upper body stuff, but I'm doing no, no lower body. So we'll see how that goes. Mm. Yeah. Other than that, John, that's about it. Let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Benoit. Train hard. Train smart. Kicker. Kicker.